and welcome to Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And today we're going to talk to uh, another podcaster on the, Melt- on the Meltdown Network, uh, London. And London runs the History of the Batman show. And I've actually appeared on London's show, so this is a reciprocal show in a way. Yes. <laughs> and um, very exciting. It's cool to, um, to, have, to be in this space specifically because we both record mainly in the same space right and um so i have to ask you what's it like being on the other side of of the table <laughs> <laughs> it is a little different especially when i've done interviews or i've talked to other people i kind of i know the setup of what the show will be and so you're gonna throw questions at me which i'm sure i'll be able to tackle but it's a little <laughs> different but i'm comfortable with you it'll be excellent good. yes yes so um <laughs> one reason why i thought it'd be cool to, to have you on specifically now is that um at meltdown here at meltdown comics where we where we tape and um for those who don't know pod sequentialism is pretty much brought to you by meltdown comics and collectibles and la luz de Jesus gallery which is a art gallery that i run and about i want to say six or seven months ago i think was when london was first talking to me about doing a batman art show yes and um and i started talking to some people and it's funny that a mutual friend was asking me about a batman thing right after you had talked to me about it and i think i hooked you up with andy and the show was supposed to be at a different location that ended up kind of pulling their availability and as all roads lead to rome all nerd roads lead back to meltdown and the show is up on the walls right now as we speak yes the first show i did do with andy and Mm -hmm. that was at the hive gallery in in downtown and and that was that was a a success and it was my first history of the batman show that i got to curate and i was so excited and i think it turned out well the artists were amazing and yes there's a show right now Mm -hmm. at meltdown and it is a darwin cook tribute show Mm -hmm. and it's remembering the late darwin cook and all cells made a portion will go to both the Canadian Cancer Society and the Hero Initiative, who is actually sponsoring the show as well. Excellent. I've I've actually <laughs> I've participated with um, with the Hero Initiative a couple of times, um, and taking care of some of the elderly comic book artists, people who are heroes of mine growing up, and um, who because of the nature of this business and there not being a union and um, and there not being a lot of things in place to take care of people. Um, for a very long time at least, and some of them still needing a lot of help that they require a lot of volunteers to be able to um, go grocery shopping for, for some of the elderly artists and you know take them uh, out to eat and just like have some of them to talk to since a lot of the time, um, you know, especially as you get older and as the people you know start to pass away, that you find yourself spending a lot of time by yourself and that's a drag. And these guys have such great stories to tell. Yes. You know, Russ Heath is one of my favorite people to spend time with because he's just such a character and he'll he'll tell you all kinds of off-color stories about <laughs> working at the Playboy Mansion and, and these other things. But um, so big supporter of the Hero Initiative as well. And so I wanted to really talk to you about specifically and what seems to be a recurring theme on this show of finding what it is that you love and making it something that you kind of do. And so, obviously, you're a huge Batman fan. Yes. (laughs) And so, how did this come about? Well, when I was really young, the my first introduction to Batman was the '66 show. I mm-hmm. saw the reruns with my dad, yep. and so my first Batman was Adam West. And so to this day, Adam West is still my favorite yep. Batman. And I just loved the stories. Of course, it it just was so bright and colorful. It's just pop art, just on the screen. And I mm-hmm. already loved that. I didn't know in the future when I would go to school I would study that, but I just already automatically fell in love with the aesthetics and. Mm-hmm. I loved the Batman character and just how everything was in that utility belt. And while there was a cliffhanger, everything worked out in the end. And Mm -hmm. I just loved the stories. I was really captivated by them. And then I started watching the animated series Mm -hmm. and started watching episodes of that. And The 1990s animated series? Yes, the 1990s animated series. Not the filmation 1970s show. No, I I didn't actually get to see those until later because... Once I started watching animated series, I really enjoyed that. And it wasn't until the episode Bane that I really liked that character. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, even even then, I wanted to know more about that character. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't read comics yet. I hadn't read any comic books yet. 
but I wanted to read some about Bane, and then that's when I learned about Nightfall. Yep. And so that series was my first introduction to Batman and comic books, mm-hmm. and I and I read that whole arc, and I absolutely loved it. I loved the story. I and for me, it was more Batman was in. I mean, he was physically and mentally just. Played around with by Bane. Now, was, and, was that the Brave Fogel art run? Yes. Yes, okay. Yes. And who was writing that? Was that Doug Mankey? Yes, it was Doug Mankey and Chuck Dixon. Right, right. Back and forth with, between Batman Detective. And then there were crossover um, issues, too, with Robin mm-hmm. and Catwoman. But those were the main two. And and I, I loved the story. And I loved that in this one, Batman didn't just get up and save the day automatically. It just, it took a long time. That was the yep. first time I really saw Batman in a struggle and having to overcome it. But when he did try triumph, I, I loved that. And I think mm-hmm. that's what hooked me to Batman because in my mind, superheroes all had superpowers and I would automatically think of Superman right. who just in a general sense I knew. And I think Everyone in a general sense knows who Superman is, yeah. even if you haven't read comics or anything, just because he's the archetype of the superhero. Yeah. So everyone knows. And that is what started my fascination with Batman. So then I started reading more Batman comics. I started watching more of the TV shows, and I got into the film that were coming out during the 90s, right. the, the, show, the Schumacher, and then yeah. I got into Tim Burton, and it all kind of just snowballed into really loving Batman. I was going to ask you because, <laughs> you know, if you had come to Bane through the Joel Schumacher film, <laughs> I mean, it's it's like, what, three minutes of screen time total, maybe. Yes. Um, does not address anything about the character. He's he sort of grunts. a throwaway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, and uh, I had, it's interesting that when Nightfall came out, that was... Let me think. Is that like ninety two? That's like ninety late ninety two to like ninety four. Right. So the um fantastic store was still open. So the shop that Gaston and I used to work at before Gaston branched off and opened up Meltdown and um you know, we, we literally built the store across the street from where <laughs> we are now out of like, you know, ply like built the store, literally built the store. And um that run was on the newsstands as I was kind of segueing out of comics for a bit. And it was as I was starting to work also at the at the gallery and was being introduced to um a lot more um I won't say it was necessarily quite fine art and I can definitely look at it and think of it as fine art now, but then I was thinking of it as more uh, of a step between the illustrated form of you know, sequential art and comic book art. And a lot of the guys that were in the shows were people who had done like underground comics and were doing specific gallery pieces. So that was part of that bridge. And that was also right, right about the time that the, the floor fell out under comic books, (laughs) that the numbers of everything that was being pressed were so overinflated and so collectible market um, targeted. You had the whole Valiant thing and little gold corners. Yes. And, I mean, you look at it now and it's almost quaint. It's like, wow, people really wanted this comic because it had a little gold colored corner, <laughs> you know, as opposed yes. to being like, you know, holograph or completely different it cover. Brought out the collector and everybody. Yeah. Did all of them. Yes. And we had speculators. <laughs> we had a lot of speculators from the entertainment business and stockbrokers, one of whom actually kicked off the Batman animated series because he was such, as a film, because he was such a fan of the series and he worked at Warner Brothers. Oh, okay. And he wasn't like a like an on the ground producer kind of guy. He was a an employee and he just loved the series and he started kicking up a lot of fuss that they needed to do, you know, a film and Mask of the Phantasm came oh, out of that. Nice. Which is kinda of great. Yes. <laughs> but the um the other thing is like and this shows the age difference I think, is that um when I grew up I was also watching those Batman reruns, you know, the sixties mm-hmm. series. And that was also about the time that the filmation Hanna Barbera Batman series was on Saturday mornings, mm-hmm. and Super Friends was a different show. Yes. So there were different vocal talent involved in the two animated shows. Right. And and probably even different, you know, animators and and um, production companies. So you'd get very different takes from all three at the same time. And of course, I didn't realize when I was very young that the series was old; that it wasn't something that you could just see. And it was also coinciding with that nostalgia tour Mm -hmm. that was starting to happen in the 70s that people that were on 60s shows were starting to do this circuit of appearing places. (laughs) And it wasn't even necessarily conventions. Like sometimes it was like 
a a car lot and right. you go to like a car lot in Boston and Adam West would be there to cut a ribbon on President's Day or something. <laughs> and um, and then I started reading the comics and I had been kind of more of a, a Marvel kid, I think. And the Hulk was on TV and there was Spider-Man every place. And um, and I, I got on my hands on an old Batman comic and it was part of that Neil Adams run. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that was happening the same time as the TV series. Right. yes. And what a tonal difference. It- Definitely. <laughs> like watching that ultra bright, hilarious kind of TV show and then wa- and then reading those, you know, it's race out ghoul stories. Gothic stories, kind of dark. Yes, yeah. definitely. The tone is very different. <laughs> Which is very similar to what you just described. Right. 30 years later. Yeah. You know, with in the, in the 90s of the tone of the films being, you know, this Tim Burton kind of madcap Disney goth thing. Mm-hmm. And then in the comics, incredibly violent. Um, I mean, we had just gone through Death in the Family maybe mm-hmm. a year or two prior where they right. kill off the um, the second Robin. Right. And, um, and it was funny because people who weren't paying attention to comics just automatically assumed it was Dick Grayson. Because that's the Robin right. they know from yes. other media. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's funny how we go through these cycles, and though we're we're probably a, a generation apart, we have these exact cues based on completely different media. Right. But that's what's so great about comics, and so great about specifically Batman. Yes, that through this whole seventy-seven years, his evolution is extraordinary, and mm-hmm. tone changes, and just the look of it, and the storytelling, and it all each almost feels like almost each decade has its own special vibe to it, mm-hmm. and you can focus on one Batman from the fifties and compare it to the one from the eighties, mm-hmm. and you have two completely different Batmans, so still with the same set of values, and just it's the same Batman, but he's just told through different creators Mm -hmm. and reflecting the time period and it's that's and I think that's why when I started university I went to Loyola Marymount Mm -hmm. and I studied art history but I'm more focused on pop art which turned into a fascination of comic book art and putting it in the in the actual historical context Mm -hmm. because I love 60s pop art and of course that turned into my love for the 66 show which happened way before I even realized oh I love this and I focused on the fact that the 66 show happened during the 60s and this is why it looks like that I mean even Andy Warhol in an episode is in a 66 show and I think that's where I found an interest to look at Batman in that context, in a historical context, actually mm-hmm. going through the years. And although it's the same Batman everyone loves, he has changed so much. And mm-hmm. kind of how did he start in 1939 to how we see him today? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where history of the Batman began. And it was just for me. <laughs> it was for fun. It yeah. was it was my last year in undergrad and it was just kind of something to get my mind off of all the, the dissertation finals and all the major projects that I had. Yeah. And I was reading digital Batman comics like the Golden Age comics on my iPad and mm-hmm. just kind of reading comics. I'm like, oh, this should be fun. And I just made an Instagram page and thought I'll just start from the beginning. And I'll just go through major characters, major stories, and just Mm -hmm. go in order. Because for me, if I wanted to do a page or a blog, I have to have some type of structure. Right. (laughs) That's just how my brain works. Right. So I figure what better way than to, especially when I want to talk about Batman, which I love, Mm because over the years, ever since I started reading comics, I read comics, and I got into other heroes, and then I even got into Marvel, and then Captain America was actually my other favorite. Yeah. And... I got more into comics reflecting the time period when I had to write about um, comic book art during World War II. And that's how I got more into reading more Captain America and then kind of having to formulate that paper. But then that turned into more of a fascination for me. I'm like, oh, I love that this propaganda. And then I saw the ones for World's Finest and and Detective Comics. And I just loved that. And I figure I love that maybe there's more that I don't know about. And it's more educating myself about it. So I figure, okay, I'll do this blog for fun. And that's all it was. And then it started to grow Mm -hmm. and I had, I was shocked and I still am shocked even with the growth that's happening today. 
but I gained about like 2,000 followers in the first like two weeks. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. And so, and people, I got a lot of feedback saying, I love this format. I love how you're going in order. And I didn't know this character was so old. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that the penguins from the 40s or yeah. I, and, and, and people love the Joker. I didn't know Joker was in this comic and all of those things. And it was like, okay, sure, I'll keep doing it. And that's kind of the power of, of, of social media tribe. You know, that, um, you know, before, well, before 1995, when the majority of people weren't online, mm -hmm. and really in 1998 with Windows 98, I think is when a lot of people started to really get online. Yes. That it really started to change. And then you have like eBay and things like that that start to happen between 98, 2000. That um, the availability to find things online, that now being online wasn't just this kind of lark. You know, that right. um, it wasn't just the discussion groups, which were great, you know, that the, on the news groups and on, on Usenet were like, you know, my heavy metal news groups were, were a great source of arguing with people all over the world. Um, and then as a video trader, I realized that buying and selling old videotapes that that jump to Next Media and Laserdiscs and other things that you could access films that you never had access to. And now, of course, you find stuff just by it's playing someplace. Right. Like you pull up uh, YouTube or some kind of BitTorrent and, and you can find absolutely everything. You can everything. find pretty much anything yeah. on the internet yeah. now. It's a gift and a curse. Yeah. Well, now because there's <laughs> so much, it's, it's actually harder to find things. Right. That you if have you, to really filter it yeah. out to find what you really want. If you've got something that's, that's like a, a one-word title, you know, and it's a common word, but you're 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 dealing with a really specific thing. Then mm -hmm. it, it can take you way longer than it would have taken right. you ten years ago and twenty years ago, of course. But the um, the interesting kind of caveat to all of that is that now it's really super easy to find a group of people who appreciate whatever it is that you like. Yes, and you, know, you mentioned Chuck Dixon. Yes, and so when Chuck Dixon was first working for DC, he was a unicorn. Mm -hmm. There was nobody like Chuck Dixon right. in comics. Yes. You know, and now it's it's a little bit different. There's a lot of people with a lot of various background. There's a lot of different people of of um, different ethnicities, different contents. We have a lot of Brazilians working in comics. Mm -hmm. um, it's like baseball. You know, that um, it seemed like in a way in a real way, Chuck Dixon broke a color barrier in comics. Yes. That it was an invisible barrier. It wasn't something that people really thought about. And when you read a comic book, you have no idea because you know, there's not a picture of the person exactly. who writes and draws a comic. You just see the name and just like, okay. You know, and just take it for granted. Right. And so the other interesting thing about having a show that touches so many people that, that has this one character in common is that you now meet everybody and you realize what an international thing this is, mm -hmm. what a cross um, economic thing Batman is, what a cross um, ethnicity thing Batman is, that, it, that he's a character that appeals to absolutely everybody. And you mentioned something which is really interesting, and, and um, I'm going to touch into this, that your other favorite character is Captain America. Yes. There was an amazing run that almost nobody read on Captain America that talked about this other Captain America that was around when Steve Rogers was on ice. Oh. And it's this incredible story about the Black Panthers and this other Captain America. It's an amazing story. Someone was, was posting about it recently, and I was like, I totally forgot about this story. <laughs> and then I went back, and of course, you can find everything online. Yeah. I read it online, and I was like, this was amazing. I, that sounds awesome. I want to read that. <laughs> they had to cram it into like four issues. Oh. And this is something that really should have been a 10 or 12 issue series mm -hmm. that could have been. They could have expanded on that. It could have been like Marvel's, and yeah. it could have been kind of a really great, like, it's the, the Marvel Universe as a, a conversation about race, as a conversation about the, the lack of importance about those things in the format as opposed to the importance of those things to the readers. Right. And so you get to have a lot, you can have a lot of fun with those types of things. And of course, it's Marvel. So there was, and it was Marvel Comics, not Marvel Studios, where they're much less likely to address I know. that type of thing head on. <laughs> I mean, less so than DC, and DC's not better necessarily than. Mm -hmm than a lot of others but it's it's now it's hard to address those issues and not get some type of backlash and even things yeah. that you don't even think would get yeah. a response 
It does. Yeah. Every, someone is always there to be negative. That's for sure. And if we so, know anything about the internet, yes, right? Yes, of course. So I I would love to see stories like that, but, but then again, it might be difficult to kind of go head on and the the publication decide how would we tackle this right the most PC way which is to completely can. disarm the conversation right and if, <laughs> right. Some, you know, if you want to make an omelet you got to break a few eggs right you know and and I think that what's most interesting about the arc and specifically to Batman and in the Batman family is that they've addressed a lot of really interesting things pretty generally Mm -hmm. that you look back and you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, you're talking about my favorite character is Robin. Yes. (laughs) We've we've talked about this. My favorite character is Robin because I feel like I could be Robin. I could have been Robin (laughs) that I wasn't born with superpowers and I Mm -hmm. wasn't born a millionaire. But under the right circumstances, I I hasten to not want to say best circumstances we don't want our parents to die but if our parents died and you know i could have been adopted by a bill you know a billionaire who could have trained me to be his crime fighting sidekick right out of all the backgrounds that's somehow the most possible the most possible (laughs) (laughs) what does that say about our lives but the um but the great thing about that is that it you know i never thought about this but what a great character for adopted kids what a great character for orphans you know what and not just a a boy their same age that people can look up to but someone who represents another kind of not really talked about demographic in the superhero world Mm -hmm. unless it's an adoption of convenience to push a story forward exactly and that's a whole different dynamic with with batman and robin Mm -hmm. so the um what and this is this is like an impossible question. I know that it's like asking people their <laughs> ten favorite records. It's impossible, and it, it can change from five minutes to five minutes. But of all the stories involving Batman, which is your favorite, and who do you think is the best writer that has handled the character? And they might not be the same thing. Yes, um, I am. Of course, I feel it's probably nostalgic because I do love Nightfall. Mm-hmm. But the first time that I read The Killing Joke, mm-hmm. I fell in love with it. And Brian Boland's art, I'm forever a fan. And I yeah. love his interpretation of Joker visually the best. Yeah. Um, and even though that story is tragic, it's it's horrific, mm-hmm. I think that it tells a lot, not just about Joker in the background, but Batman and Joker's dynamic with each other and even Batman himself. I think it kind of deals a little bit with the the psychology behind Batman, kind yeah. of why he does what he does. Just like Joker is saying, oh, everyone can go insane. It's like Batman it's a little insane too. Yeah. And we don't, maybe we don't want to admit that, but there is, he is damaged to a point where he is dressing up like a bat yeah. and scaring criminals on the shadows. And that came out pretty quickly after Dark Knight. Yes. So you have the, who are the two, considered the two greatest writers in the comic medium. Mm-hmm. And already at that point, already considered maybe of all time, the right. two best writers of comics. And now there's, there's arguments to be made for a few other people to be in that conversation. And now when I go back and read Frank Miller, I don't enjoy it. And it's funny that I can still go back and read The Daredevils, Mm -hmm. which takes place in kind of a really specific, um, more realistic version of a New York City. And they can say it's New York and it's not this fake town. But um, that he seems to, I mean, all his stories are Death Wish. Like every one of Frank Miller's stories really are built around the Charles Bronson movie Death Wish in one way or another. Yes. But what I felt in reading, and I loved Dark Knight when it was brand new. Loved it. It was coming out weekly, and I was reading it, and almost got into a fight with um, one of my really good friends who accidentally sold my copy of Number Two Dark Knight to another oh. person at the comic <laughs> shop who had never shopped there before. And I was just kind of like, I can't believe he did that. And it was it was just like really, you had to reach deep down in, inside of myself to forgive. But um. And we got over it. But the when I went back and read it again, I guess this was this was about ten years ago now. I was shocked at how much of a complete sociopath Batman is presented as being in that book, mm-hmm. and how the worldview was so grim, and it had this really um, 
I mean, it, it was very right wing and sort of, uh, you know, Miller always has been. But I had heard a story and it made total sense that at some point, Frank Miller, who had been had moved from Vermont, was living in New York City, was writing for comics, was drawing for comics, and he got mugged. And his world reality changed. Uh. And his stories became much more like Bernard Getz type <laughs> stories than, right. you know, the And the that would they make would sense been. after that. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And I've always heard this as like this kind of, it was a joke, I think, that um, David Brenner used to tell in the 80s. And it was like, oh, what's the difference between a Democrat and a Republican? And um, you know, I was like, oh, what is it? And it was like a mugging. <sighs> You know, that someone can be incredibly liberal and then all of a sudden the world impacts them and and their worldview changes if they don't get past that. And that killing joke is Alan Moore kind of looking at this acclaim that Frank Miller's story got Mm -hmm. and saying, I disagree with this. I think I'm a better writer and (laughs) I'm going to make this one, this nice little package and sew it up and then I never have to touch Batman again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Alan Moore did. Now he looks at it and and Alan Moore in recent interviews doesn't disavow Killing Joke, but he he does say that um, he feels that he went way too far with it and that it it was really too grim. And of course that tells you that it's the opposite of that experience where it's like he hasn't gone through a mugging. It's like he's in love and he's married and they have kids (laughs) and he can be a magician, you know, he can do what he wants to do. And that's so interesting that he said it's, it's, it is, it does feel too grim because I feel like this sums up Batman's reality perfectly. I think the darker the Batman story, I think the more you can see the type of character that Mm -hmm. Batman is. While, of course, there's the 60s kind of bright interpretation that we've seen in Adam West show Mm -hmm. and in the 70s filmation cartoons and things like that. And, of course, Batman has been interpreted different ways. Mm -hmm. I do think at the end, when a writer really shows... Batman's thoughts or what he goes through and kind of his view on the world I think that's the most accurate when it is very dark and it is grim so Miller's Batman and and Moore's Batman when he did that and even and and a writer that I really do I'm torn between two I'm torn between Grant Morrison Mm -hmm. whose first story I read was the Arkham Asylum Serious House on Serious Earth and I absolutely loved it and Dave McKean's art is insane now we get to have a great conversation about (laughs) i i love grant morrison and when that graphic novel came out i opened it up and it made absolutely no sense to me and but from an art perspective it was every page was beautiful and it was sort of like a series of paintings that you looked at that told the story but the format of the graphic novel for that project right. seemed to not work for me. Mm-hmm. What do I know? It's the best-selling graphic novel of all time. <laughs> but that, and it, owing to the timing of that that film coming out, I think, too. Right, and, definitely. And I think that Morrison's story worked, but visually it, it, it led the story. Yeah, I you'd think never it, you seen anything like right, that before. You, in you a don't even comic. need <laughs> all of the dialogue yeah. that was there. Like McKean's Oh, you could read paintings. it in two minutes. Yes. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it's hardly like, anything. I, and it's like, oh, well, I got it. It's, it's like, like an issue yeah. of Cerebus. It's like okay, page, 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 page. Oh, there's one word, page, 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 done. And then you go back and then you study each page. And you're like, yes. oh, Gerhard's backgrounds are amazing. And um, McKean's artwork in that was, of course, extraordinary. And kind right. of set that high bar and actually really did more than anything. And even more so than Neil Gaiman's um, Sandman, I think, set the template for what would become Vertigo. Yes. You know, for sure. For sure, yes. And But um, also in that in that group of people is is Pete Milligan and the work that he did on the the it was originally a supposed to be a limited series and then I think they went the distance Legends of the Batman right mm-hmm. yeah and his stories are always really interesting I always loved his take on Shade the Changing Man and that to me is my favorite Vertigo series in that it's one character and his journey the entire series mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of cheat that Neil Gaiman had which was to make an anthology <laughs> series around a single character uh, much much harder to carry that through right. when it's one guy and, and two girls in a car but um, that Milligan has always been that guy that kind of walks that line between that kind of pop 60s Batman and the grim 90s mm-hmm. and to me it's like a blur record like if if they if these British writers are all Brit pop musicians, then you've got like, I guess you'd say that Grant Morrison would be, Grant Morrison would probably say that he's the Sex Pistols, but um, <laughs> but Grant was more like, 
oh, Manic Street Preachers, but with the fame of Oasis. No one's going to get these references. <laughs> um, and and Pete Milligan was Blur, like kind of like a, a wink and a smile, and you have a good time while you read these, but they're actually really talking about real stuff, or right. like Pulp, yes. you know, who had these great, happy kind of songs. You listen to the lyrics, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is really serious. <laughs> But, um, and then Alan Moore is, I don't know, Dylan, but um, not British <laughs> at all, you know, just like laying down the law. But it, it's interesting to look at these different takes and and to, to have so many different people that can tell so many amazing stories about the same character in such different ways. Right. More so than any other character. Yes, I, I definitely agree. I know that there are all these different rotating teams for other heroes, but it just feels like in Batman's timeline, they there have been different creative teams that have just changed mm -hmm. the character, yeah. but still kept the same foundation where you know this is Batman, but it's a little different in tone, it's a little different in style, it's a little different in the allies he has or the villains he has. And I Certainly think from that's, Dick Sprang to Frank Miller. Right, exactly. And I love both. Yeah. And so it's like, and you can do that with Batman. Yeah. You can love two completely different styles, two completely different writers or artists, and still feel like, oh, this is all Batman. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love to do with History of the Batman because a lot of people, depending on what you read, you might read the current Batman right now. You might read the Tom King or the Scott Snyder or the the current writers. I like Snyder a lot. Yeah, yeah. I like Snyder too. Or you might be 90s and like Bray Fogle and mm -hmm. J.M. DeMathis and all of those writers. Or you might like Miller. Yeah. Or you might like the Gold and Silver Age. With uh, There's so many. Yeah. Or, I mean, one of my favorites is... Neil Adams and Dennis O'Neill yeah. 70s early 70s run my, my first experience amazing. with the character in right, comic book form my, my and it's funny because the team that took over on detective shortly after that Neil Adams run on Batman was the first comics that I bought as a collector that I walked into a comic book store because I saw an episode of Simon and Simon that talked about comics and that there was this issue of a comic that wasn't number one, that was super valuable. <laughs> and I was like, how was that possible? And so I went through these comics that I had kept that I had bought years earlier. And among them was Werewolf by Night number 32, the first Moon Knight. And so I went to, I, I looked in the yellow pages under comic books, nothing. <laughs> now this is like 1984. Comic books was not a, a, a part, you, something you could look up in the yellow pages. So I looked under books, and under books there was a half-page ad in the Yellow Pages for, you know, the Salem, Lynn, Massachusetts, you know, uh, north of Boston, <laughs> North Shore area. And there was an ad for a place called Corner Bookstore, and they had a big comics, you know, written. It was a terribly laid-out ad, but it was the only one that had it. <laughs> and so I looked at that, and I'm like, I can, I can hit that after my paper route tomorrow. And I, I rode my bike downtown, found this place. Left my bike outside, and and when I opened the door, the guy was like, "You better bring your bike in here. It's gonna be gone." <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, I didn't realize this was a bad neighborhood." <laughs> and and went in and, and started kind of listening to them. And I, I went to the three for dollar bin and just listened to them talk. And I pulled out like House of House of Mystery and all these great rights and covers. Mm -hmm. I was just drawn to. But the first book that I bought that I paid more than cover price for was the Joker fish stories, the Marshall oh, Rogers Batman. The laughing fish. Yeah. Stuff. Yes. And so Tom Snagoski, the comic book writer, who was not a comic book writer then, was just a guy who lived there. And um and he kind of walked in, took me basically by the uh by the hand and said, Okay, this is what you need to be reading. Mm -hmm. you know, like they were there was these these guys and they were like college age guys and they're having this very passionate argument about stuff I had never heard about. <laughs> they were talking about Badger and they were talking about American flag and um Cerebus and um and then there were these other younger kids that were still a little bit older than me. They were kind of like arguing with them about the merits of like mainstream comics like the X-Men. And that was still – Chris Claremont was still writing the X-Men. Right, yes. And so I also listened to them and I bought the latest issue of X-Men. I was like, this is this is great. This is totally for me. And so started kind of like eavesdropping and adding to it before I decided to speak up and have an opinion about things. I wanted to do my, my study mm -hmm. and get these comics. And so back in 1980 – I guess it would have been 83, maybe 84 – um, the Joker fish stories in Batman, I think I paid $2.75 for each. <laughs> and one of them was, was $4 in, in that run. And I think it was the first appearance. It was Manhunter, 
mm-hmm. by um, uh, Walt Simonson was a backup story in Detective at that time. And okay. so it was the first yes. appearance of the character. Yes. That was $4. You know, and then there was the dead man <laughs> stories were backups, you know, around that time too. And, and those were like $5 or something. But the, um, that's what the, the state of things. And I bought this, this thing called Comic Book Collectors. It was a magazine. And it had, as I recall, ElfQuest on the cover. And I almost didn't buy it because it had ElfQuest on the cover. <laughs> but it was the only, like, monthly publication that had a price guide in it. And it was – they didn't have Amazing Heroes. Well, Amazing Heroes didn't have a price guide. But um, so I, I bought this and brought it home. And, and that was, I think, probably $3.75 or something crazy. And – and saw that that issue of Werewolf by Night was worth like thirty-five dollars. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah, you know. <laughs> so the, the worm had turned, and so this kind of happy accident of watching a TV series, and then following it up with a little bit of my own detective work to go and buy these comics, and the stuff I buy is Batman. And while my parents were not fans of me spending money on comic books. I found out that my dad's favorite character as a kid had been Batman. So he's kind of okay with that. <laughs> no, I, I understand. My my parents, they they never understood like why I was into superheroes. They actually didn't haven't understood until I started History of the Batman yeah. and they saw the people who follow and how people love it so much. Yeah. And they've actually gotten, I've gotten them more into wanting to know about Batman yeah. and DC comics and comic books in general. I think because they've seen the reaction it has to the vlog when it yeah. first started, which is great too. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but no, I, I definitely think um, they, I mean, I've always been a, a huge, I've read novels yeah. and books. I've always have read everything and so they loved that that Mm -hmm. i was an avid reader they just didn't understand why i was looking at books that was just mainly pictures yeah (laughs) but i think now since they know that my love of art and kind of how i incorporate that into a historical look at it and everything i think they see the appreciation that i have for it and appreciate that I enjoy it so much. So. I still love the <laughs> I still love the expression funny books. You know, it, it sort of represents everything that people did not understand about comics, yes. especially in the seventies and eighties. But um, that you'd hear there would be the disparaging relative that uh, would would call them funny books. My dad <laughs> certainly did, and um, so all my friends and I at that comic book shop, many of whom became great mentors and good friends, and um, people that I still talk to today quite often. You know built around that one thing, that one commonality. And the the archetypical nature of things, like you say, Superman being such an archetype and I mean deeply rooted archetype. Yes. You know, it is the you know, the Ubermensch. Um, you know, it's very interesting that these two Jewish comic book creators created this character as an effrontery to the notion of the Ubermensch that the Nazis had <laughs> and that they grew up in this rough and tumble neighborhood in New York City and and that, you know, Jack Kirby could have very easily have been Ben Grimm, mm-hmm. you know, that he would develop that character years later and certainly long after developing uh, Captain America. But um, and when they when they killed Captain America in comics and I've been away for quite a long time, the notion of that was so offensive to me that it seemed immediately to me to be something that was a cash-in, like like DC had done repeatedly. Right. Killing off Robin, breaking Batman's back, <laughs> you know, uh, killing Superman, and then bringing everybody back. And, um, well, except for, well, yeah, I guess they did even bring back Jason Todd, oh, right? Oh, yeah, and Batman Hush, eventually. Yeah. it That was the longest, I think, except the character had been away. Yeah. Except for Bucky, uh, yeah. for, at least for DC. Yeah. So that's why when he did come back, it was just, it was like, what? Yeah. He's back? And then a lot of people were like, who's that? Yeah. That, that, I think that was the other thing. It had been a, almost o- over a decade, yeah. and then you bring this character back, and you almost have to re-explain who it is, mm-hmm. because now you already had Tim Drake as the other Robin, and yeah. you know Dick Grayson, but Jason Todd was there for such a short period, yet impacted a lot of people. Uh, and I think that's why I really like to talk about Jason Todd as Robin, mm-hmm. because it was such a short period of time, but it affected so many things in Batman's life. And, and then Death in the Family happened. Mm-hmm. I know people know Jason Todd more as Red Hood, yeah. but I think his Robin history is rich, even though it was short-lived. And so that's the fun thing with Batman. Was his it's first just... appearance that Max Allen Collins run? Yes, <sighs> it was. See, that is that is my <laughs> least favorite issue of a comic book, I think. Was that like 501? No, it was right at it was 505, right? Right, because it's right after yeah. the that the great 
um, Frank Miller Year One mm-hmm. series, which I, I really, really enjoyed. And I, I liked Year Two as well with the Alan Davis art. But um, the David Mazzucchelli, um artwork oh, just yes. was amazing, Brilliant. and was he was so great with um, with Frank Miller on Daredevil. It made sense that they would reunite. And I love that Daredevil run that Mazzucchelli illustrated for mm-hmm. for Miller. To me, that was the high the high benchmark in Daredevil. And when people started talking about, um, you know, the um, the two runs not so long ago. Um, as being like the best Daredevil runs ever, I was like, "Oh, you can never beat Miller," <laughs> you know. And, and then it's like, "Oh, this guy did sit, did you know, Sam and Twitch or whatever." It's how, how good can this be? And it's like, "Oh my God, this is actually better." <laughs> and, and then the next, oh, the next one's even better. No, it isn't. It's impossible. How can it be better than you know than than this amazing series? And then and it's even better. And you're like, "Okay, I'm not going to say anything anymore." <laughs> but that, that that one issue, that one issue that Max Allen Collins, who had done such an amazing job as a writer on Mystery. One of my favorite indie comics, you know, of the 1980s. And I just read this and I was, and we were so excited. It's like, oh, this guy's going to take over Batman. And I read it and he's, he's stealing the hubcaps in the Batmobile right. or something. And I, I just, I just shut the book and I just kind of <laughs> slid it back across the counter. I'm like, okay, give me an X-Men comic. Like I'm, I'm swapping sides, you know, I'm going back over to Marvel. It was, it was to me such a terrible storytelling mechanic. Yeah. So let me ask you that. What's your least favorite Batman comic? Oh my goodness. I'm sure they're going to uh, make fun of me a little bit for for it um, because it's always hard for me to find something that's like my least favorite because I always try to embrace Mm -hmm. all the Batman stories and find something good this will be as difficult a question as you face for me in this show yes (laughs) no no, that's fine Um, I think one one that I've still I tried to reread it and I'm disappointed just because I loved uh, the Dark Knight Returns so much is uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again. Oh yeah, that's awful. That was, <laughs> and yeah. I've tried to I've reread it. And I'm like okay, especially when I've covered it on the blog yeah. or talked about it on the show, and I'm like okay, I have to reread it. And I'm like I still can't really get into the groove of it. You and I think it's yeah. more jarring because. The Dark Knight Returns is so groundbreaking and yeah. iconic and all of these things. It's on the highest pedestal probably for yeah. Batman. And then the sequel just lacks a lot in the story and even in the, the artwork art was itself. terrible. Yeah. Right. And so that I probably would say is is, is a hard one to get through. Um, mm. But I, like I said, I try to find good in all yeah. of, of the issues. But yeah, I think that one, that's... Yeah, the most recent. I think that would be that's a that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I remember when the cult came out, and yes. and Bernie Wrightson was is maybe my favorite comic mm-hmm. book artist ever. Not maybe he is. He's absolutely yes. my favorite comic book artist ever. And the idea that Wrightson was going to finally do Batman, who he hadn't done since issue seven of Swamp Thing, you know that. Oh, everybody's looking forward to it. He had just done these two amazing graphic novels for Marvel. He had done the Spider-Man graphic novel, and he had done The Thing and Hulk, which is one of the all-time funniest graphic novels <laughs> with amazing art. One of my a treasure of my childhood. I dare not go back and read it lest I think less of it. But um, <laughs> that it was so great, and expecting it to be, you know, that type of that Bernie Wrightson, and instead they had him kind of doing this mix of Bernie Wrightson and Frank Miller with the TV talking heads, yes. that it was jarring to, to open that up and see it and it not be what I wanted it to be. And I, I would liken that, I guess, to the people who were excited about Frank Miller working with um, with Bill Sankiewicz to do Elektra. I loved Elektra, and I love all the groundbreaking stuff that he did, but I also worked in comics at that time. And I remember <laughs> the incredible backlash that that comic got from the yes, majority of fans. Because they wanted just, you know, the Frank Miller Electra. They didn't want this crazy, amazing, <laughs> wonderful, madcap story. And, um, and, but The Cult was still a pretty good book. Oh, yes. And, and so it, an interesting look at Batman in that. Yeah. But that, that Dark Knight Strikes is, is really, really rough. That's, yeah, that's, it, it is. It, it's a rough read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll hear a, a little word from our sponsors. And then um, when we come back, we'll be talking to London, um, host of History of the Batman, about um, you know the other things that just make her love comics and the things that I think we can all agree upon. So we'll be right back after these words. 
And we're back. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me London, host of History of the Batman. And um, we're going to wrap this up um, a little bit sooner than usual because I think we've covered a lot of ground. But I also want to ask you this before before I let you out of my booth. (laughs) That um, as how long has it been now that you've been really wrapped up in comics? I would say it's I mean. The History of the Batman started 2013, and I started reading comics like early 2000 and mm-hmm. kind of went off and on. So so let me ask you about what you've noticed in the landscape of the comic shop. Because no matter where you buy your comics, as you hear about new comics, they don't have everything. Nobody has everything. And certainly back issues are not the priority that they were for they were they're not the bread and butter that they were for comic shops right, for, for yes. like my era and before. Mm-hmm. So in seeing that changing landscape, what do you think has been no, most noticeable? Um, I would observe that a lot of what I have seen is that when I worked in a comic book store, I can count on one hand the amount of times a girl walked into that comic book store <laughs> who wasn't in a relationship with somebody who worked there um, or the sister or mother of, yes. of said said employees or shoppers um, that nobody was really coming in. No women were coming in to buy comics and yes. certainly there wasn't much for them. Now it does seem like there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more versatility in storytelling so that there are stories for everybody. But what what has been the biggest change that you've noticed as you know as a as a young woman starting to collect comics and walking into comic shops? Um, what was that first reaction when you walked into comic stores, and what is it now? Well, well, like you said, the first time I walked into a comic book store, it was like other people around me were like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a girl here, yeah. and so that is definitely something that has improved yeah. now i still think there is this notion that um, guys read more comics than girls and so it's more of like a male-dominated thing but that has definitely changed not just with like you said the stories that are being published but there there's something to read for everybody yeah. like men women children everybody mm-hmm. and that's so that that diversity has changed greatly uh, i think that for a lot of stores back issues are becoming less less and less yeah it's not a priority anymore at all and when i first was were going to comic book shops like there were just rows and rows and rows and you could look at dreams yes and you could find all of those issues especially when i really was getting into batman and i was like oh i want to read this story i heard this story is good and they're not the current comics like i have to find it and that is becoming harder to see i think and i think now there's this huge um kind of community around collectibles and toys yeah i think that is having a much larger presence in comic book shops now and even when you go to cons there and it's it's kind of a bummer because the con like the back issues the comics are in this one corner over here and then there are all these vendors with funkos and toys and sideshow and all these things so i think that's a huge difference too but i would say the diversity has changed for the better Mm -hmm. I think it's a much more diverse group of people that come into comic book shops or read comics, which is great. And yeah. I think they have stories that are accessible for everybody. Yeah. And, of course, like you said, Batman seems almost universal or like yeah. everyone reads it. When I talk to people who follow the page, I talk to people who are here in California to someone who's in Zimbabwe. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've talked to everyone from all over we're like, oh, I love this story. And you would think, oh, we should be different because we live in a different place or we're a different color or a different gender and all of these things. And I think comics can be something that brings people together. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest change I've seen in comic book shops is the diversity, yeah. which is a good thing. But then I think sometimes it'll lack in the older issues and you get the, the more issues. And then you have lots of trade paperbacks, yeah. which although I do have trades and that's fine, I love like the feel of just the single yeah. comic I think better I've, <laughs> I've gone through my time as a individual comic book issue collector and I've had my you know 25 long boxes and now I have I've narrowed it down so that for collectible comics I think I've got like 10 that I've kept in you know mylars and that would could easily be comic book graded as like 8.5 or above or something but I think that's been the biggest impact to the back issue market and it's the 
the CBG guiding, like this yes. universal guiding system, mm-hmm. you know, a 5.4 action number one just sold for a million dollars, which is crazy. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've seen like Saga number one um, CBG, you know, 9.5 for like $2,000. Oh, wow. I didn't see it sell. Yeah. But I saw in price for $2,000. I'm like, that comic is two and a half years old. Come right. on. And it wasn't a low that's, print that's run. That's what was surprising with the wow. It's like, yeah. it's very recent. But you can get like an eight in a reasonable place for like... $250. But the um I think the condition grading has been the thing like that now whereas you could just like go through great old bins of bronze age comics and be like a couple bucks that those comics that would just get thrown in long boxes mm-hmm. are now getting thrown in hard plastic getting yes. graded and they go on eBay or they're going into like right. specific, you know, like Amazon and, resale. Yes, and while we own some of those comics and like collect them is it's the other part where, like, I can't read it. Yeah. Can't even touch it. Can't, <laughs> can't look at it. Can't touch it. Can't open it. Can't look at the story. <laughs> That's the only drawback. But, yeah, if you definitely want to preserve a comment that you're like, oh, I love this, or it's this old and it needs to be in yeah. this protective case or it'll fall apart, that's one thing. But it, it there is a drawback to it. But if when I can, I do like to uh, collect those, especially if it's signed by someone yeah. and I maybe don't want to touch it because it's signed yeah. and I want to keep it nice and pristine. Well, cool. Well, I guess that's where we'll leave it. Uh, all my questions have been answered. Yes. It's, it's been great of you to come on my show. No, thank you. This was fun. And um, again, you know, tune in to History of the Batman, also on the Meltdown Network. And we'll see you back here again at Pod Sequentialism um, a week from today. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.